Is elite overproduction the source of our political instability? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. High levels of political violence and low levels of institutional support suggest we are in the midst of an age of discord. Although rich democracies may seem stable, over the long run, political regimes rise and fall. Are we seeing signs of political disintegration? What can we learn from history about how societies overcome these periods when they do? This week, I talked to Peter Turchin of the University of Connecticut about his new book, In Times. He predicted the tumult of late and says we won't escape without puncturing concentrated wealth. He points to our large class of aspiring elites competing for power, lawyers and millionaires not doing anything to advance the living standards of most Americans. The past suggests that our choices are either a mostly unchallenged elite who moderate how much of the pie they capture, or a prolonged conflict over power among overproduced elites. This special edition is more speculative and wide-ranging than normal, but I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So you've just uh, published a new book, In Time, so tell us about its uh, major findings and implications. Well, the book is about complex human societies organized as states, which have been around for 5,000 years. And these societies, they can show uh, longish periods of internal peace and stability, maybe a century or so. But in the past, inevitably, they would end up in some kind of end times, uh, periods of uh, social uh, dysfunction, political disintegration, and things like that. So think about famous revolutions like the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, or civil wars like the American Civil War. Why? Uh, a common theme that arises from the analysis of um, 200 uh, at this point of uh, past societies sliding into a crisis and emerging from it shows that a common theme is elite overproduction. This is uh, what happens when you have too many elite wannabes, or the technical term is elite aspirants, vying for a fixed number of power positions. In the book, I use um, a, a metaphor of playing a game of musical chairs but instead of removing chairs one at a time, you keep adding more and more players. And so uh, as there are twice as many, three times as many players as there are chairs, you can imagine how much of a chaos would ensue. So this is a good metaphor for our societies because, the, because elite aspirants typically are energetic, uh, ambitious, uh, well-educated, good at organizing, and therefore, when they are frustrated in getting the positions that they expect, many of them turn uh, to, uh, to trying to, in fact, overthrow the unjust social order as they perceive it. So it sounds like we sort of have our choice of either a very stable uh, but unrepresentative uh, and unchallenged elite, or uh, we we have this broader competition, which leads to to polarization and and downfall. It, it is, I mean, we are now in a, a extended period of having mass higher education uh, and civil rights, at least to the point that that people have access to those mass higher education institutions. So is this kind of our permanent state now uh, or uh, do you expect elite overproduction era to to end at some point? Not, yeah, not at all, because if you think about it, if uh, all societies, as I said, go through these integrative versus disintegrative phases, and the United States uh, went through its integrative phase from the New Deal until late 1970s. So this was a good democratic country, but the supply of elites was not greatly overwhelming the supply of power positions. It's really all in the balance. Some competition is good, but excessive competition is bad because excessive competition um, uh, tends to um, uh, destroy cooperation, essentially. All right? So um, we are given that at some point this problem uh, will have to be solved one way or another. Unfortunately, our historical uh, data analysis shows that in the majority of cases, past societies 
had pretty violent end times, as I said, revolutions, civil wars. It's only in a smallish percentage, maybe 10-15% of cases, where we see positive outcomes, such as, in fact, what happened during the progressive era and uh, the New Deal period in the United States, which, in fact, enabled uh, broad-based prosperity. After the war, the, the 30 years after World War II are often called the glorious 30 years because the society was in social balance. The fruits of economic growth were divided fairly between the economic elites and workers. And uh, in principle, uh, maintaining such an equilibrium is possible to do. So you uh, list this as one of the drivers of, of instability, but you also uh, point to the necessity of some degree of, of deprivation, some kind of fiscal health problems and legitimacy problems with the state, and then kind of a catch-all of geopolitical factors. So how, how do these all fit in? Is elite uh, overproduction the primary uh, driver, um, or, or how do these others fit in? Yeah, so here's the, um, I think it's, it's, it's a good time to talk about the wealth bump. So the perverse wealth pump that uh, transfers riches from the workers to the economic elites, it was not operating until late 1970s in the United States specifically. And that's what we see across the, uh, the societies that we have studied. So um, as there is, uh, but then um, it, uh, it, it was turned on. In the 1970s, and we can talk about uh, why in a minute, but essentially that is the root cause. First of all, uh, you, I'm sure that uh, you and your listeners are familiar with that graph that shows how the productivity of American workers has been increasing. And for a while until the 1970s, the wages were increasing completely in parallel. And then something boom happened in the late 1970s. The productivity continued to increase, but the wages stopped growing and even declined. So all that extra results from the economic growth, they had to go elsewhere. And where did they go? They went to the to increase the number of wealthy and their wealth. So elite overproduction in the United States and in most democratic countries has uh, two aspects because typically the ruling classes, our ruling classes are a coalition of economic elites, owners and uh, managers of large um, corporations and credentialed elites, people who get educational credentials and then uh, enter the political process. So in the United States, we have overproduction on both ends. And in fact, the overproduction of wealthy people is in many ways is more serious. So what happened was that between 1980 and uh, 2010s, the numbers of decamillionaires, people who owned wealth of $10 million or more uh, in real terms, right, uh, adjusted for inflation, it exploded, it increased tenfold, right? So what happened that uh, suddenly we had many more wealthy uh, people and some of those wanted to translate their wealth into political office. So Donald Trump, of course, is, uh, is the, the most... Uh, the example that comes first, but Michael Bloomberg is another billionaire. Uh, the less successful people like Steve Forbes also ran for presidency. So what happens is that we have 10 times as many such wealthy people, and that translates into, roughly speaking, 10 times as many more wealthy candidates. You can see them actually in the uh, in the election process. And as they uh, competed to the number of elite aspirants increased, so we have this uh, musical chairs problem. It's uh, in 2016. There were 17 major Republican candidates in the president in the primaries in the for the U.S. presidency. And as in the game of musical chairs, if you have too many people um, vying for a few chairs, then uh, the, there is a possibility of rule breaking starts to happen. You know, people might start scuffling and maybe even uh, fist fights and things like that. And that's essentially what uh, what we are seeing happening in the United States. So now uh, the, um, uh, the different uh, factions are, um, <clears throat> are fighting it out in the law courts. 
it is uh, it's going to be i think it's going to be a fairly unprecedented situation when if the uh, uh, legal proceedings against uh, president joe biden uh, go forth which they are likely to do uh, with impeachment movement and we, have, we of course have uh, donald trump under several uh, indictments so we'll have both uh, major candidates in fact being attacked uh, attacked on legal grounds. So, of course, uh, income inequality is is greater in, in the United States and rising uh, faster. But we, we do have um, a, a rise in rich people uh, across um, uh, across many uh, rich democracies. We also have a rise in higher education across lots of rich democracies. And we have seen increases in democratic backsliding across um, rich democracies. But we also have some for us longstanding patterns. They're not the the 500 year longstanding patterns that, that you follow, but um, that show that you know large uh, and rich uh, longstanding democracies don't tend to uh, d- d- don't tend to to break down entirely. Uh, instead, you kind of just see these um, re- reduction in kind of the quality of democracy uh, and more muddling through. So, is that a possibility that that you see uh, given given kind of the current uh, global dynamics? Well, uh, let me address this question at several levels. First of all, the wealthy established democracies have not been around that long. This this uh, uh, integrative periods of internal peace and order, they typically last about a century or so. And in the United States, we are actually, in fact, due for the next uh, period, because if you think about the uh, period of um, instability in the United States, included uh, the American Civil War and also the 1920s when America was in a revolutionary situation. So also, if you think about it, in the 1850s, the United States was a decent democracy. Yes, there was slavery. Yes, the uh, suffrage was not um, uh, only limited to males, white males. But it was a um, it was a vibrant uh, democracy in many ways. Also, think about UK. Uh, it's a, the, probably the longest standing modern democracy. Not talking about Athenians, right? But in uh, the 1970s, there had a complete breakdown in Northern Ireland, Ireland, a bloody civil war, and Irish. If you think about Irish, are not. Uh, particularly violent. In fact, uh, during the 20th century, Ireland, the murder rate in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, has declined to the point where it's, you know, uh, it's several times lower than here in the United States. All right. Nevertheless, uh, that uh, there was a spiral of revenge and counter-revenge leading to essentially the time of troubles that was, was very difficult to resolve. So, um, so one, uh, it, you know, it it would be uh, comforting to think that uh, our democratic institutions and productive economies will take care uh, of these problems automatically, but um, I would not count on it because uh, studying the pre-crisis periods, you know, in French Revolution, Russian Revolution, and even uh, antebellum America, they could not imagine the amount of bloodshed. That would uh, would occur, but just because they couldn't imagine, I, it is difficult for me to for me to imagine, you know, a something like a French Revolution in the United States. But just because we cannot imagine it, it doesn't mean that it it is not going to happen. So you uh, gained a lot of attention from your uh, last book, um, which I which I also read, Ages of Discord, um, uh, especially around uh, the rise of Donald Trump and the political violence um, uh, surrounding uh, uh, that. Um, but uh, what do you make of the sort of most recent trends? We uh, obviously elected uh, Joe Biden, who is a potentially uh, potentially more calming influence. Um, people are paying less attention to politics. TV news ratings are down. Po- political protest is down. Crime is down. Uh, and we had a fairly normal midterm election uh, in terms of uh, uh, participation and um, and direction. So is there a case that that we've sort of topped out uh, and are, are on the way down? Well, 
In um, 2010, I actually published uh, uh, the prediction based on the models, and nobody took it seriously that by uh, 2020, uh, there would be a major outbreak of uh, political violence in the United States. And as I was giving talks to academic audiences from that point, I, you know, I would say that the trends, the structural trends, immiseration and um, and uh, elite overproduction just continued to develop. The wealth pump was working uh, very well, and uh, and uh, and the structural trends continued to increase. So now we are here. Everybody, everybody agrees that by 2020 or January 6, 2021, we were clearly in crisis. Now, is is it over? Uh, some uh, people think that uh, this uh, uh, this. Uh, uh, somewhat calming of the situation is a sign that we are over the worst. Now, in, and I hope they are right. However, uh, there are some objective reasons to think why uh, we need to be more worried. First of all, the structural trends have not been uh, inversed. There was a little um, uptick of um, of uh, real wages, median wages for the majority of the population during the epidemic uh, as a result of, um, of state action. But all of that has been, not, has been completely reversed by strong inflation we had since then. So we are back to where the uh, wages for, the, for unskilled workers now are worse uh, in real terms than they were in the 1970s, right? So that immiseration continues to increase, to, to be here. And the same thing with, uh, in terms of editorial production, we still have be producing too many lawyers. Lawyers is especially dangerous class. If you think about it, Lenin was a lawyer, Mao, Castro, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who, who led the second revolution in the United States, was also a lawyer. We are over, overproducing lawyers by a factor of three to one. But also what's happening now is a result of the advent of AI, ChatGPT4. ChatGPT4 already at this level of technology can take over 45% of what lawyers do. So what we are doing is, uh, once this happens, uh, we would be uh, overproducing lawyers by a factor of six to one. So huge uh, swaths of those uh, of that uh, population would be frustrated. And remember, they many of them take huge debt on them. So crushed by debt, uh, working for salaries uh, that uh, cannot let them even stay uh, above uh, above water. And uh, these are, as I said, these are uh, uh, very ambitious people, smart, well, uh, you know, well connected, well, good organizers. So this is what we see typically in previous revolutions: is that these counter elites, those elites that they organize the popular discontent and anger to drive uh, against the ruling class. So those those structural conditions have not changed. And the final point is that these uh, periods of um, turbulence that typically are not over in one year or two. Uh, we, we can do statistics, uh, and sometimes they're, they are very prolonged. In fact, sometimes well, if uh, we, we end up in fragmentation and uh, collapse, like what happened to the Roman Empire, for example, then this could last for centuries. But typically... Uh, the period, this uh, periods of um, uh, of uh, 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 political violence, they are between ten and twenty years, right? So uh, we have not yet run the whole uh, uh, the, the course. That's uh, the third consideration. So and finally, uh, essentially, because the potential uh, outcome could be so dire, you know. Uh, it's maybe Second American Civil War is not hugely likely, but it's not it's probability is not zero. The outcome would be uh, completely disastrous. So, so uh, if, well, let's say it's twenty percent probability. Is that something? Would you really like to play Russian roulette of this kind? No, we, we need to do something. And um, on the uh, the democratic. Uh, 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 president, 
uh, has not done many of the obvious things that need to be done to shut down the wealth pump, such as increasing the minimum wage. It's still there at $7.25, and of course, losing in real uh, purchasing uh, power. So uh, Thomas uh, Piketty has uh, a model of uh, elite competition um, that is in some ways uh, consistent with with your uh, model, but talks more specifically about competition between two elites, uh, a merchant or rich people right, uh, and a Brahmin or educated people uh, left uh, that he says has increasingly uh, consolidated uh, across rich democracies. Um, So I want you to compare your formulation uh, to his. Is, but also, it, to me, that raised the possibility that we have sort of a, a new kind of polarized stability. In other words, there's not a, a single ruling class. There's a competition between two uh, ruling classes based on education and income uh, across the rich world. What do you think? Yeah, in fact, I cite uh, their work. But it is, uh, I think it is a mistake to think about the credentialed uh, elites uh, and the wealth uh, elites, economic elites, as uh, monolithic. That's not true at all. The credential elites, there, is a, there are huge uh, ideological battles uh, right now within the credential elites. And in fact, uh, we see both um, right-wing and left-wing uh, radicalized people. It's interesting interesting enough that um, probably the uh, the institution that produces the most elite aspirants is Yale Law School. Well, Yale Law School produces both uh, a left, uh, a left uh, like Chesa Boudin, for example, and also uh, I blank out the name of of the, uh, who organized the Oath Keepers. He was also uh, a graduate of uh, Yale Law School, and then a number of right uh, uh, wing. Members of Congress are uh, are products of Yale Law School. So, so their formulation is fine, but you cannot assume that there is just two forces. No, uh, and in fact, this is a typical situation. This fragmentation of both ideological and political field. This is very typical during these periods leading well crisis periods. So, think for example, eighteen fifties, the two party system collapsed. And there were dozens, two dozens of parties uh, vying for, and one of them was Republican uh, Party, in fact. So uh, what we see now, we see Republican Party is definitely fragmenting between traditional Republicans and the right-wing populists led by Donald Trump. There is also very uh, serious uh, fault lines within the Democratic Party between uh, Bernie Sanders types and uh, and, uh, establishment Democrats, establishment Democrats and establishment uh, Republicans, their disagreements are completely minor when you look at it, especially outside of the United States. They're all for uh, things that benefit their current ruling class, low taxes and um, uh, keeping their wages, uh, workers down and things like that. So some of your uh, evidence from the from the U.S. or the evidence that you start with is about um, self-financed candidates, and you mentioned a couple of them um, in, in the opening. Um, but the broader evidence shows that self-financed candidates win at lower rates um, than other kinds of candidates, and they don't dominate in, in either party. And when they win, they don't tend to vote very differently uh, in Congress compared to, to other, other people. That doesn't mean that Congress is is not elites, um, but you know, c- c- sort of consistent with 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 Piketty's evidence. Um, you know, Republicans in Congress, the number one occupation is business people, but Democratic uh, Congress people, the number one occupation is lawyers. So there is, you know, a, p- a potential kind of competition among types of elites. But at, at least in my mind, it's not that dependent on kind of these self financed candidates converting wealth and in, into politics. It's it's the fact that we have these two big sides, which are both very well financed um, uh, in politics. So what I guess what is the role of these self financed candidates? Is that just a set of it's examples? Not, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not huge. Uh, in fact, because as I in, the, in my book, which where I, of course, have much more space to develop these ideas, I make the point that many 
of the uh, wealthy uh, wealth holders don't necessarily run themselves, but they run uh, candidates, they support candidates, such as, you know, you can think of Peter Thiel. He doesn't run himself, but he supported J.D. Vance, for example, which is a pretty radical um, uh, type. Um, he is definitely not at a, a traditional Republican, not a, um, uh, you know, uh, the establishment Republican. So, okay, so and what's important is not who's winning. It's important. What's important is to look is who is losing, right? Uh, and that is that is from where we see the counter elites uh, uh, rising. So right now, uh, most of the um, uh, counter elites actually call them dissident elites because they are not taking violent, not, they're not revolutionaries, they're uh, working using the legal structures, even though they may bend them a little bit here and there, break the rules of the game, but they're not, uh, Donald Trump uh, is not a Vladimir Lenin, all right? Um, uh, certainly Lenin was much better at organizing a revolutionary movement than uh, Donald Trump. So, um, so that is um, a very important um, problem. And then remember that uh, I have a whole chapter about revolutionary troops. It's the, um, the mid-level of uh, the potential radical organizations. They are the, that middle level is peopled by uh, credential holders, not only legal, uh, not only law degrees, but lots of uh, people who had um, you know, English degrees and things like that. You, if you look at some of those, uh, B, uh, you know, uh, BLM riot, riots uh, during 2020, um, they were uh, most of the most uh, most of the um, uh, you know radical people. There were actually white, uh, both men and women, young uh, who had a college degree uh, or in the process of getting college degree. So they create a huge mass of disaffected people. So you have, you know, uh, we have well uh, at the top of the wealth distribution, we have uh, wealthy counter needs. Then you have mass of um, of uh, mid rank uh, and low rank counter needs with credentials. And then we have the population. Sixty percent of the American population are work- working class people without college degree, they've been immiserated and they are very easily mobilized, as we saw in 2016, by um, political entrepreneurs who uh, who uh, use them to propel themselves into power. So you also uh, rely on uh, Martin Gillen's evidence uh, about the influence of uh, uh, income on uh, the influence in the policymaking uh, process, um, but uh, most others have found that uh, differences in opinion across income groups are, are rather small for, for most, especially redistributive uh, policies. Um, and some of the differences are due to sort of attentiveness uh, and do people have an opinion or, or express a non-opinion um, on, on those issues. Uh, and and they're nothing. Uh, even Gillens uh, acknowledges that they're nothing compared to the differences on partisanship and ideology. So that there are big differences in in public opinion, but most of them don't have that much to do uh, with uh, the income distribution. Um, that doesn't mean that rich people don't have more more influence in politics. I think people would uh, acknowledge that. But I, I wonder if we're sort of overstating the role of the income distribution here relative to uh, the fact that we have, you know, two, two major sides in American politics and both have both popular and elite support. Well, if you think about, um, about it, uh, first of all, Martin Gillens did uh, a remarkable, and his colleagues did a remarkable job. They collected a big database. They analyzed it using the uh, the best uh, analytical techniques, and so um, so I have not seen uh, their findings to be overturned on methodological grounds. And but also they make sense. This country has changed uh, very dramatically from the New Deal to the Great Society period, and then from the late seventies and especially Reagan Revolution to now. We live in, um, before that, before 1980, the United States was essentially a Nordic-type uh, social democracy. 
right? Um, and uh, we saw that uh, during that period, the as I mentioned earlier, the wages grew completely parallel in parallel with productivity, and then they broke uh, and uh, separated. So something has happened. So now the uh, the way that society in, uh, in economy, political economy in the United States has been reconfigured uh, during the 1970s so that now it works for the benefit of the economic elites. So that to me is uh, additional and maybe even more dam- damning evidence uh, that uh, that Gillians and his uh, colleagues are correct. Also, earlier you mentioned that in other countries uh, we see increase in um, inequality. But if you look, if you compare United States to other OECD countries, we are an outlier. You know, we are a huge outlier in many more ways than just inequality uh, in terms of the health outcomes, how much we spend on um, health and how much we get out of it. So the next one is UK, and then we get to much lower France, Germany, and other, and then finally get to social democratic countries, Nordic countries like Denmark, for example. So um, United States, I argue in my book that United States is a plutocracy; it's not a democracy anymore. And uh, I think that uh, evidence both. You know, if you believe your eyes, and I, I, I've, I've arrived. I'm an, obviously an immigrant. I grew up in the Soviet Union. I left Soviet Union in 1976. I arrived here just at the end of those glorious uh, uh, 30 years, and uh, I know from experience that uh, t- today this country is a very different country from what it was when I arrived. So you uh, mostly say uh, that uh, in order to to quell this disruptive period, there's going to have to be some uh, redistribution or generally kind of liberal set of or left set of policies. Um, But there does seem to be uh, some success by the right in uh, reinventing itself in in an unequal age. Uh, They they have done uh, okay, uh, despite uh, representing uh, uh, the policies that that don't uh, quell these uh, uh, rebellions. Um, Nathan Kelly uh, has done some work in the United States showing that actually Republicans have done better uh, as inequality has has risen and where inequality has risen. So it, it seems like there uh, there's a a potential future in which uh, inequality is actually uh, a actually a, a stimulant of success by the right and kind of the opposite policies than, than you're proposing to uh, counteract this. What do, you, what do you think of that possible future? Well, uh, let me uh, I make it very clear in my book that I, uh, I adopt a completely nonpartisan uh, stance. I, am, I criticize both Democrats and Republicans equally. And so, and in fact, it, it's not correct to say that I argue for redistribution. The, uh, what I'm arguing is we need to uh, to shut down the wealth pump. So is increasing minimum wage a redistribution, right? Is uh, 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 making CEOs uh, uh, pay their workers more? That's not a redistribution. That's uh, simply, and many people uh, argue that social uh, economic justice, as uh, the productivity of workers rises, they should their wages should also rise in parallel with that. So um, didn't mean to misstate, but those are both policies obviously preferred by the left uh, over the right. So they're still things that'd be more likely to be implemented. People, by the um, people politicians like J.D. Vance and uh, um, and commentators like uh, Tucker Carlson have been saying this thing. In fact, sometimes uh, Vance, Vance and uh, Sanders say things are very similar. So we see the same thing in France, uh, the communist uh, Mélenchon and uh, the right-winger Marie Le Pen, they, uh, they talk about workers and their you know, status in similar terms, even though they completely would never cooperate, obviously, politically. So um, what I am, uh, I'm saying is that uh, there are... Uh, uh, and also, okay, let's just uh, again step back. Let's we, we have we, we know how these periods are resolved. They are resolved by shutting down the wealth pump. In most cases, this happens as a result of social revolution. Like for for example, in Russia, nobility was destroyed as a class. 
right? Or in uh, civil American Civil War, the ruling class, the Southern plantation slave owners, the slaveocracy, so to speak, it was destroyed partly physically. Half of them got killed on the battlefields, and the rest of them were uh, demoted from the elites because they lost their property. So, so there, there is a violent uh, route to this. Or there are uh, some examples such as uh, the New Deal or uh, the Chartist period, mid-19th mid century. Uh, England, um, British Empire was the only large European state that escaped revolutions of 1848. So sometimes the elites do it uh, by reforms from above rather than by revolution uh, from below. I would personally prefer reforms uh, from above. Elites are not bad people, or not necessarily necessarily bad people. We need elites. Without elites, complex societies cannot function, right? It's just we have to constrain the elites to act in the public good rather than for their own selfish uh, needs. That's, by the way, how typically wealth pumps get turned on. Uh, a country can go for a integrative phase, things are nice and peachy, and the elites are tempted to start reconfiguring the economy in such a way that it would uh, benefit them. This is known in sociology as the iron law of oligarchy, just because they can, all right? So what we need to do is we need to, uh, to remove this possibility to, in order to uh, keep the social system in balance, essentially. It's not redistribution, it's rebalancing. Okay, but are there other, I mean, presumably changes in the population dynamic uh, could could matter as there are, are fewer uh, kids. Um, the changes in immigration levels that you've uh, mentioned also uh, could, could matter. Um, I'm just looking at the, I'm just looking at the worldwide pattern and saying, uh, if we're trying to, I, I understand the, the, what would need to happen to, to change the, or reduce the, the wealth bomb, but it seems like the right has been successful in arguing that, um, you know, there are other, there are other ways to quell the, the dissent, uh, basically, uh, and still gain, uh, mass, mass support. Um, is that, you don't see that as a as a possible future. But the problem with the current right is that um, they are mobilizing popular support, but it doesn't mean that they're going to do things. Uh, again, I am criticizing equally both sides of the aisle, so to speak. In fact, um, um, uh, Donald Trump's uh, administration uh, did not was not successful in uh, shutting down the wealth uh, pump. In fact, they increased the taxes. Right. Uh, and that's not a good uh, thing uh, because uh, uh, because uh, with low taxes, you have more and more of those uh, overproduction of wealth, uh, wealthy um, wealth holders is only hastened by um, by low taxes on top incomes. Anyway, so what I, w I want to say is that um, I don't want to come out and say that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, Republicans, uh, in fact, know what they're doing. Uh, maybe some of them do, but uh, most of the rhetoric that we hear is pretty much standard, uh, you know, ruling class uh, rhetoric. Also, you mentioned that we had, a, you know, fairly uneventful elections of 2022. What worries me is the elections of 2024, all right? Now, with lawfare practiced by everybody on everybody else with uh, incendiary statements um, uh, mobilizing um, popular anger. Uh, we have half of the population, the American population, uh, is armed to the teeth. We have more guns than people. And um, looking at previous, um, at previous uh, rows into civil war, civil war doesn't happen overnight because people... Uh, uh, it takes like mm, a spiral uh, to get um, uh, anger up to the point where people start killing people, right? And in fact, it takes months or even years uh, for for that to happen. So we are on that track right now. And uh, uh, even though that numerically we have fewer riots, let's say, this year compared to 2020, 
violent riots, but uh, the underlying uh, pressures continue to grow. So you encounter someone in your book who who argues that while well, everything's getting better worldwide, uh, why why is this um, uh, why is this occurring now? Um, and you uh, counter um, bo- both that you know within societies we we are seeing these uh, rises in inequality, even if the the global poor uh, are in decline. And then you talk about the rise of deaths of despair uh, in the U.S. and kind of the broader pattern. But I didn't quite get um, where you fell on the the spectrum of there there really is deprivation here versus uh, this is about relative standing and uh, people are going to even if even if their circumstances um, are not actually um, all that negative, if there's a, a big rise in, in wealth at the top, um, you know, it's going to seem that way. So, so which which side, I guess, do you follow? So there? it's relative, but but relative is um, to the experience of different people. I uh, subscribe here to the. Uh, theories of certain economists who think that people's expectations are uh, set when they, as they grow up in the households of their parents. And so they expect to to have life at least as good. And in fact, for three generations after New Deal, the average generation was doing better than the, the uh, than their parents. But now, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the pattern is that the generation, this generation is doing worse than their parents. One, um, uh, one student in Athens during a uh, anti-government demonstration yelled, it's, it's not right that children should live worse than their parents. Right. So, yes. So obviously, uh, um, you know, millennials, uh, their life is better than uh, some uh, peasants uh, in uh, 13th century France or something like that. But uh, that's not what they compare themselves to. They compare themselves to uh, to their parent generation. And there, I, I actually do quite a dissection of this. Uh, uh, of this uh, question, uh, my argument is: first of all, you have to look within the country because each country is different. They're at different. They have different. Um, you know, China, for example, where the global where global um, poverty rate was reduced primarily because of China. Well, China emerged from its previous age of discord quite mo- much more recently. They've got um, a few decades to run before they will get into their own end uh, times unless they do something to prevent that, right? So you have to look uh, separately at each country. Within the United States, the f- that immiseration is uh, definitely uh, happening. Uh, life expectancy of Americans uh, this year is, uh, we lost like 20, uh, more than 20 years of progress in life expectancy. And life expectancy started to decline uh, before COVID uh, epidemic. And for uh, the working class, uh, for uh, people without college education, life expectancy, especially males, started to decline even before that. So we, uh, this is absolute immiseration, right? When you have uh, when a lifetime life um, expectancy declines, that's absolute uh, immiseration. So you uh, talk about uh, your uh, approach uh, of, of long-term uh, quantitative dynamics um, across lots of different societies, especially in comparison to uh, traditional history. Um, but I wondered if you could compare it to, to quantitative social science, uh, where most of our uh, listeners have heard the most uh, about. Um, there are obviously large uh, fields that study social and economic political dynamics across countries. Uh, to my mind, at least, there's a increasing... Uh, attention to long-term dynamics as we get uh, more long-term data. So I guess, how does your uh, project um, and those of your, the folks that you work with compare to kind of those broader trends with it? No, completely synergistic. And in my book, I cite um, quantitative political scientists, quantitative ecologists, sociologists, and so on and so forth. So the only thing that cleodynamics adds is that... um, when you study societies, both historical and present, you cannot just separate economics out or uh, political, uh, you know, elections out. Those are all intertwined. So societies are 
dynamical systems in which different part, parts affect each other. They are nonlinear feedback loops. And uh, therefore, we need all those scientists plus climatology, especially for past uh, populations, which are more uh, vulnerable. So essentially, the, the, the question is um, bring, uh, take from all the social sciences and other sciences what you need to understand why um, societies change in a particular way. It doesn't mean that everything is, nece- is necessary. It is, in fact, part of the scientific process to find out what are the important drivers and what drivers you can neglect. But certainly that uh, the social um, social drivers such as um, social, upward social mobility and downward social mobility, right? So those uh, t- uh, turn out to be key parts of uh, understanding why societies get into end times, essentially. And what, in your view, is the relationship between these kind of uh, grand scale uh, theories uh, over long time periods and and across many countries uh, compared to kind of the specialized knowledge that uh, people have of particular uh, cases and and time periods? We need both. Um, And in fact, uh, each uh, state, each country is different in important ways. For example, for the elite overproduction, it matters what uh, social? Uh, what are the basis of social power that are emphasized by elites? You know, whether it's military, militocracy like Egypt, for example, or uh, plutocracy like United States. So those details are very important, all right? And uh, the same thing is that um, there, uh, uh, there is also to understand how societies develop, you, you cannot only use those um, uh, those those uh, drivers, the structural drivers, because clearly individual action, we call them triggers, all right? So the triggers can come from a variety of sources. They are unpredictable. Uh, that's why I say that we cannot predict uh, the future in any great detail, all right? So, um, so the specialist uh, uh, knowledge is key because, uh, for example, uh, how do we test these uh, theories that people have proposed? Not only uh, the, the theory that I've been explaining, but alternative theories. Well, uh, with uh, large amounts of data, where does the data come from? From professional historians, archaeologists, uh, religion scholars, and people like that. So uh, we love historians. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, history, traditional history can uh, has happily existed and can continue to happily exist without cleodynamics. But cleodynamics cannot exist without traditional uh, history. So their, uh, their relationship is mutually, uh, you know, certainly uh, it's, um, it's, uh, it's very important for us to have those specialized mm, uh, knowledge. But there does seem to be, uh, I don't know if there's a backlash, but maybe there's just a cycle within the social sciences where at least in some fields like international relations uh, and economics, um, there sort of was a period of more grand theorizing that has kind of given way uh, to uh, more uh, more specialized uh, models and more country and, and time period specific uh, findings. Um, is that a, is that a mistake? Uh, should we should we go back to trying to, to make as many uh, broad uh, claims uh, as we can or should we learn something from kind of the period of exposing these kinds of theories to the details that uh, sometimes we find that the details mattered a lot in all these specific cases? Well, as I say again, we need both. We need both grand theories and specialized um, studies. And yeah, it, it is a generational process because uh, we were talking about cleometrics. It had its own heyday, then it was uh, in the 1990s, there was a cultural turn, which is uh, very easy to understand. The new generation of scholars comes and they want to make the na- name for themselves. So what did they do? They dump on their predecessors. All right. And then, of course, uh, one generation later, another generation comes. And now suddenly quantitative methods are back in vogue and uh, they are being used. And But that's, that type of uh, seesawing effect is not necessarily bad because... Mm, 
science uh, thrives on diversity, of diversity ideas. We, we need the different types of theories, explanatory theories. We need different types of uh, ways to get data. Uh, and uh, so, and we need different types of methodologies and approaches. They, uh, in the end, work synergistically together. So one question I, I think I mentioned, but I don't think I got the, the full answer was just about um, de demographic uh, decline. So, um, you know, th there's aging across lots of these societies. Um, people are having fewer children. Um, that would seem to have pretty big implications for, you know, rising of, of counter elites. And certainly there are people talking about gerontocracy as a as an outcome um, in, in, in major countries. So how, how does that that fit into to your model? What, what will happen if if we just have fewer young people? Well, uh, in fact, um, many of the previous uh, periods of uh, instability were brought uh, to the, an end by population decline. Because what happens is that uh, when population declines, you reduce the, the supply of new workers, all right? And um, that uh, tends to... Uh, to increase uh, the price of labor, so the wages, and that turns uh, that uh, turns down the wealth pump. So everybody's talking about how terrible you know it is that uh, populations are declining. But first of all, what is what does it mean aging? Right? It's not uh, we we live longer, but we also have longer healthy lines. I, I for example, I'm sixty six. I uh, don't intend to stop working until uh, you know they carry me out feet first because I enjoy what I'm doing. And many people are that way. Many people don't want to retire. They want because work gives us. Many people get a meaning of life from work, and so uh, this um, uh, you know as long as people are, uh, are are healthy and their brains work, they um, can continue uh, being uh, productive. Uh, and that's not a problem. So, in fact, uh, this is one of the counterintuitive things. This is why the mathematical study of societies is important, is because you think, oh, my God, you know, population is declining. Who's going to feed the old and so on uh, and take care of them and so on and so forth? But once you put that into the model, you will see that it actually is, uh, uh, it will result in good outcomes eventually. Also, um, by the way, uh, if we have uh, uh, fewer, when we have, because it is true that the cohorts, uh, the young cohorts, is declining in the United States. All right, that means actually that um, the probability of uh, widespread violence, political violence, is less because it's young males, especially, who are the driver in uh, in, in, uh, in driving violence. So there are there is silver lining to all those uh, the first blush negative trends, but when you start uh, incorporating them into a dynamical model, you find out that uh, they are not so bad after all. There's a lot more to learn. The science of politics is available biweekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. Racial protest, violence, and backlash. Why Lawyers Rule American Politics, Right-Wing Extremism and the Capitol Insurrection, How Presidential Appointments Reveal Policy Goals and Elite Interests, and When Partisans Endorse Violence. Thanks to Peter Turchin for joining me. Please check out his book, In Times, and then listen in here next time. 